0: On Good Friday, it's appropriate as we sit here together to contemplate the cross, to meditate grace on the crucifixion. Grace, Easter death, morning will come, and with it, the celebration of the resurrection, the but before the celebration effort, comes this time of, of awe, this time of spirit. darkness, this time when we look at the cross of Christ and think about what it cost to pay for our sins. When we contemplate the cross, how do we usually do that? If you picture to yourself the scene, if you picture the crucifixion, picture it in your mind and ask yourself, where am I standing? What can I see? Ordinarily, when we picture this event, we picture Christ on the cross and ourselves on the ground. Maybe looking up, Maybe standing there at the foot of the cross. Or if you're right in your right mind, maybe prostrate at the foot of the cross. We look at the cross and we think about the suffering of Christ. We think about his death. In churches around the world, the stations of the cross are memorialized so that no episode in his humiliation and in his suffering, is lost sight of, is forgotten. And when we contemplate that, we think about how bad it was, how terrible it must have been to have witnessed such suffering, to have witnessed his death. As we think about how bad that was, sometimes uh, we turn inward and we we realize that if the crucifixion was that bad, it was only because That's what was necessary to atone for our sin, and so it drives us to meditate on how bad our sin must be. Oftentimes, to us, the atonement seems out of all proportion with the reality of our sin, which doesn't seem to require that great a sacrifice. But perhaps we just don't estimate truly how bad our sin is. We stand before the cross or kneel before the cross on the ground, looking up at Christ, dying in our place, dying as our substitute. These are the thoughts that fill our minds and our hearts. But there is another way to contemplate the cross. There is another way to see it, another way that Paul talks about seeing the cross that's very different than those things. And that's the way that I would like us for a moment to think about the cross. These are Paul's words in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oftentimes we think of ourselves looking up at the cross, but here Paul thinks of himself on the cross with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. I'm on the cross with him. This vision of me with Christ is an important one to have as we think about the cross. Because the cross is not just something that we regard at a distance. It is, as Paul says, something that we participate in as well. In Romans 6, when Paul talks about baptism, he makes a similar kind of a statement when he says in chapter 6, verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In order to walk in newness of life, first we must be buried with him in death. We must, as Paul says, Be crucified with Christ. Those who believe in Christ are engrafted into Christ, which means engrafted into his death, which means that we are dead to the law. In Galatians 2, as, as Paul contemplates the value of the cross, he sees in the cross the means by which we as sinners escape condemnation. Because you're no longer under the law once you're dead. Just like you're no longer married once you're dead. You take vows till death do we part. In the same way, death ends the rule of the law over us. Just seems like a hard solution to that problem. By being grafted into Christ, we experience his death, which is necessary to our life. Sometimes when we think about John Calvin, we think about a pointy, bearded theologian, a little cerebral, maybe too logical for his own good. But when you read his commentary on this passage, he waxes mystical. It turns him towards mysticism. He keeps talking about secret things throughout this passage here when he thinks about what it means to be grafted into Christ, grafted into his death. He says that we as believers derive a secret energy from this union, the same kind of energy that the twig derives from the root, that Christ is the root from which we draw this power, this root which animates us to be crucified with Christ, to be able to say, that's me on the cross with Christ, unites us with him in his death so that we might live, so that we might experience Christ in us. Paul sees me with Christ, only to see Christ in me. It is no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. Which may have been surprising if you received this letter, if you were in Galatia and you were reading the scroll, and you're thinking, well, actually, Paul, you're alive. You're not dead. How can you have been crucified with Christ if you're still alive? But of course, he's talking here about spiritual realities, spiritual death, and spiritual life. He's dead in the sense that the old man is dead. He was dead in his sin, and now that past is gone. It's dead. In Paul's case, there's even a change of name to commemorate the new man. But the new man is Christ in him, Christ indwelling him. He's experienced a new birth. He's moved from death to life, as we all do when we believe in him. On the cross, Christ does for us what we could never do for ourselves. But as a result of that, we now are enabled to do what we could never do before, which is to live. When we think about the cross— and we contemplate it this evening, let us contemplate the atonement, contemplate the debt that was paid, but also the life that was given as a result. For Jesus came to save us, not only from the consequence of our sins, but also so that we might live as we were meant to live, so we might live abundantly. It's a remarkable thing that Paul is speaking of here, that believers live, as it were, outside themselves. That we live in Christ. The only way to live in Christ and have Christ live in you is to have real, real, actual communion with him, to be truly bonded to him in death, And in life. And now, Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith is for life. Spiritual life has an already not yet quality to it, obviously, in the sense that we do not yet enjoy all that has been promised to us. So how is it that you live in Christ, how is it that Christ lives in you and yet you still live here? Christ lives in you and yet you still get hungry. You still get sick. You still sin. And yet Christ is in you. How how can this be? This spiritual life side by side with this physical life. Well, Paul says that the life I now live is In the flesh, in the body, this physical life I live by faith. The life of faith, simply put, the life of faith is a life which finds its satisfaction more and more in the life to come. We as human beings find our hearts tortured by longing and desire. We are perpetually unsatisfied. We never have what we want. We're always thinking about what it is that we desire, what would make us complete and whole, what would make us happy, and we are surrounded by things which promise to give us all that. Possessions, bank balances, other people, relationships in our lives, all of these things promise to fill the emptiness inside, and all of them eventually fail. The life of faith is to live more and more with hope in the life to come as your object. The true longings of the human soul are longings that can only be satisfied in the life to come. And so we stop trying to appease them with sacrifices now, which can never satisfy, and instead live more and more by faith. And here... We do not live by our own power. We do not live by our own power, but by Christ's power in us, a secret power of Christ, so that it is for believers as if Christ were not only living within us, but growing within us as well. As the Spirit sanctifies us, as we become conformed more and more to the image, of the Christ who died for us, we have faith for life in this world, in the life to come. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As we contemplate the cross, what we see is Christ giving himself for us. As we said before, a substitute, a sacrifice made in our place, a price paid For us. And here, Paul tells us why. Why why did he do this? And the answer turns out to be love. He did it out of love. Christ sacrificed himself for you because he loves you. He was willing to give everything on your behalf because he loves you. There is no other reason. There is no other ground apart from his love. No goodness in us, no worthiness, nothing that makes us better than others, and therefore more the kind of people that Jesus would want to die for, but instead love. That that unexplainable thing that leads us to want to sacrifice ourselves for another, Jesus felt that for us. Felt it more than we've ever felt it for anything we've ever loved. And it led him the cross. It's interesting because, of course, the significance of the work that was finished on the cross is that Christ pays the price for our sin. He does this by living a life of obedience, by keeping the law, by doing the thing that, that we could not do. But how does Jesus summarize what keeping the law would look like? When Jesus is asked To summarize the law, how does he do it? He doesn't do it in a very Old Testament way. When we think about the law, we think about the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, always angry, throwing thunderbolts and that sort of thing. It turns out that the summary of the law is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, so that the way to be righteous and the way to keep the law is to love is to love perfectly, to love so selflessly that this kind of self-sacrifice is what you do for those you love. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came. He gave himself. He died for the salvation of the world. But in contemplating that fact, Calvin adds these words. He says, It will not be enough for any man to contemplate Christ as having died for the salvation of the world unless he has experienced the consequences of this death and is enabled to claim it as his own. We celebrate Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, which is wonderful and so abstract. Because Jesus Christ, while Savior of the world, is also Savior of actual people, actual individuals, you and me. His love was not set on people in the abstract, on human beings in the abstract, but on actual people whom he knew and loved and gave himself for. It's more than a nice idea. It is a sacrifice in which we have a personal interest. And that's why we contemplate the cross. And it may seem strange that we do this. Certainly from the outside, it seems strange to make the symbol of your religion, your logo, the instrument of the downfall of your founder. Apparently, seemingly, the greatest failure of Christ's ministry, is the one that led him to the cross. And yet it was, at that moment, denied by his followers. Apparently, his teachings refuted, falling into the hands of his enemies, that Jesus Christ becomes Savior of the world, that Jesus Christ does this great work of love. What we see when we meditate on the cross is not an instrument of death. It is rather the instrument by whose means death was overcome by love. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.